Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, Julius Caesar has just got his command, um, the sort of long-anticipated command that he wanted to bring him wealth, fame, status, and power. So he's going off to Gaul to fight Asterix, <laughs> Vercingetorix, and so on and so forth. And that's basically what happens, isn't it, Tom? I mean, Caesar claims that he kills a million people. That's 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 the report of Plutarch writing a century or so later. He says so, that that see, over the course of the conquest of Gaul, Caesar slaughtered a million and enslaved another million. So is this um, tr- as true as the talking snakes in the story of Alexander the I think, Great, I think it's li- likely to be true. I mean, it's likely to derive from claims made by Caesar himself. Because right. this was seen as kind of glorious, bloody feats. Yeah. Um, Caesar's, Caesar's conquest of Gaul is completely illegal under Roman law. Uh, actually, Caesar himself had brought in a law saying that, <laughs> uh, the, that governors of provinces shouldn't go on kind of um, glory raids beyond the frontiers of their provinces. Uh, that's exactly what Caesar does. Um he uh, you know, he crosses the Rhine. He famously crosses the Channel to Britain. Uh, it's it, it's an incredibly bloody, brutal, ultimately glorious process, um, and it brings Caesar exactly what he wants. Exactly what he wants. It makes him famous. He writes his own reports. Yeah, you know, it's like isn't it the Churchill thing that uh, history will be kind to me? Because I intend history. to write it. Yeah, yes. exactly. So Caesar does that. His famous commentaries. Um, so he makes sure that everyone back in Rome is kept abreast of his great feats, which he reports in a tone of kind of sober modesty, which is all <laughs> the more effective for that. Yeah. Uh, and he starts to lavish money on the people, uh, bribing um, high flyers in the Senate. Um, he recruits large numbers of legions. Um, so that the 13th legion, which he'll take to the Rubicon, he's, he's recruited that in, I think, um, 58, 57 BC and it's followed him across Gaul. Now, there, all of this, of course, back in Rome, where large chunks of the Roman elite regard him rather as AC Grayling would regard Nigel Farage. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of that's 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 how Caesar is hated, right? You know, it's it, it's it's how uh, Remainers view Boris Johnson. Yeah, it's it's that level of hatred, but um, hatred and, and fury at continued success, and envy right? and jealousy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, back in Rome, Pompey and Crassus still hate each other. So there's every prospect that the triumvirate will fall to pieces. It's not an official arrangement; it's a kind of shadowy, behind the scenes agreement of the kind that had always operated in Rome. It's just that these three men are so powerful that they really can basically run Rome as they want. But by 56, Pompey and Crassus are falling out and a guy called Domitius Ahenobarbus, who comes from a kind of very distinguished senatorial family, he's a massive snob, hates, detests Caesar 
And he runs for the consulship on a ticket of cancelling Caesar's command. Um, and so it looks as though everything is going to fall to pieces. Yeah. And Caesar can't have this. So he basically knocks the heads of Pompey and Crassus together. He meets up with them in a place called Lucca, the town, a town which is just within his province. Um, the triumvirate is, is reanimated. And by the terms of it, um, Pompey gets the province of Spain for five years. Crassus gets the province of Syria for five years. Caesar gets an extension of his command in Gaul for another five years. Right. So basically, those three men have divided up the most military significant provinces between them. So again, they are effectively impregnable. What then happens over the course of, of the following years is that that alliance falls to pieces. Well, isn't that partly because it stops being a triumvirate and it becomes a exactly. duumvirate? Yeah. And so so Crassus, he he's basically thinking, isn't he, I, I'm going to become the big man because I'm going to win a victory yeah. that will make me utterly unassailable against the Parthians, who were the, yeah. the kind of, they're the inheritors of the Persian Empire, aren't yeah. they? And um, I know you'll enjoy telling everybody what happens to Crassus. Well, so so Crassus basically has he's picked he's absorbed the same lesson that Caesar had that you need conquests basically to to be at the top table now in Rome, and so he he gets Syria because he wants to use it as a base to attack the Parthians. It all goes horribly wrong. It's it's the first disastrous invasion of Iraq <laughs> by a Western <laughs> republic, um, and. Um, yeah, so Crassus ends up beheaded, and it's said either that that uh, Milton Gold is poured down his throat, or his head is used as a prop in a a, a Parthian. Yeah. It becomes a uh, sort of staging Christmas of a tree play. bauble type thing. Yes. Yeah, um, so but surely um, both those things are perfectly possible, Tom, aren't they? Yeah, they are possible. I mean, yeah, I guess yeah. pour the gold yeah. down first, and then cut the head off. I'd say the, the story of gold being poured down the throat is is one that pops up sus- on a suspiciously large number of occasions in this period. So, <laughs> right, I, how accurate it is I don't know, but. Um, that that then of course means that um one of the stools of the three-legged stool has has been knocked um and a further a, a further disaster for the for 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 the triumvirate is now a duumvirate is that um Pompey had married Caesar's daughter Julia and had loved her very much but in 54 Julia dies so again another kind of bond between yeah. the two men goes but Pompey uh, is, is Caesar's elder, isn't he? Pompey is older. No, uh, no, Caesar's older, I think. Oh, okay. So it's not a uh, weird. It's not really weird that Pompey has married Caesar's no, daughter. No, uh, but Pompey has the ha, Pompey lays claim to being the first man, the princeps. Yeah. Um, he he he's the top dog, and everyone basically accepts that. And Caesar essentially has accepted that you know Pompey's primacy. But by 54, when Julia dies, and then 53, when Caesar's, you know, he's trying to, to, map, to match Pompey up with another relative of his, and Pompey says no, it's becoming evident by that point that Pompey is starting to become a bit alarmed by yeah. Caesar's power and by the large number of legions that he has. Pompey, as, uh, as, as the governor of Spain, has a large number of legions himself, but he stayed in Rome. So he doesn't he doesn't have the close personal bond that Caesar has with his legions. And I said at the beginning about how for Caesar, the bonds of citizenship are, I think, incredibly important. And I think that what he finds in the army camp and his relationship with each of these legiones, each of these levies 
is that 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 he does respond to the idea of these legions as being you know the the republic in arms and he comes to see himself as someone who has a, 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 a truer understanding of what the bonds of citizenship should be than the kind of what he sees as the effete oh. schemers in Rome. Well, that is an interesting point, Tom, because a few people... So I mentioned Edward Habsburg in the first half. He asked for our takes on Julius Caesar. He says, is he a ruthless, manipulating thug that brought down the Republic or a brilliant soldier and lawgiver that saw the signs of the times? But you're suggesting there's a third option there, which is, I mean, that probably has elements of those two things, that yeah. Caesar is not trying, in his, in his own mind, he's not really dismantling the Republic, but he sees himself as being truer to the spirit of the Republic because he thinks the Republic is incarnated by the army rather than the Senate. Is I, that right? I don't, I don't think he'd do it quite like that. But, I mean, if you think, if you think of Cromwell discovering in the New Model Army Yes, a yeah. kind of a That's, truer representation of of England and God of England than yeah. say the Parliament. Yeah, that makes I, I think complete sense. A kind of slight parallel there, and yeah. the idea that we have of legions as distinct entities. Caesar really is the guy who who develops that. So the legions is so, so you know the um, the Thirteenth Legion, for instance, that will be a distinct entity right the way up to the fifth century. Um, it, it, it kind of briefly gets cashiered, but then it gets revi- revived by in the, the civil wars under uh, Octavian. Um, these idea of legions as distinct entities with distinct loyalties to commanders. Caesar is the guy who really, really leverages that. Yeah, and, but, and Pompey. But to- Pompey has all the soldiers who followed him in the Middle East have been given their farms, so they've all gone away. So Pompey, in a way, is is behind the speed with that. But to throw forward to the Rubicon, Tom, when, when Caesar is standing there at the edge of the, the Rubicon, and we will come back to that in greater detail later, he th- in a way, does he think that Rome is with him because the men around him are the true Rome and that the city beyond? I think, there's, the a huge, I think there's a huge, huge part of that. Because he, uh, he doesn't think he's so, betraying Rome or, or he thinks he's being true to the vision. There's a question here... Um... Yeah, from Max Parker. Was there any chance that the army would refuse the order to cross the Rubicon? No, there wasn't, because Caesar would not even have contemplated it if that had been the case. And Caesar absolutely makes sure that the the army are with him, the legions are with him. But I think that that more than that, it's the fact that the legions are with him that gives Caesar the feeling that he has the right to do what he does. Yeah. That it's not just about his dignitas, which doesn't quite mean dignity. It's kind of his honour, his his sense of worth, his the due that he's he's owed for his achievements, but that the soldiers share in that. And they okay. understand this better than the kind of do-nothing politicians scheming and whining and scrapping and complaining back in Rome. Yeah. So let's get back to the 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 position in the in the years running up to the final schism. So yeah. clearly the tension is growing between Caesar and Pompey. And there's this, basically, as I understand it, what happens is that the end of Caesar's command is approaching. Yeah. And everybody knows this is going to be make or break, don't they? Because he's he's basically, presumably he's just terrified that he gives up his command, comes back to Rome, and he'll just get put on trial or something, or Absolutely. he'll get politically humiliated in some way. Yeah. That will stop him ever holding power again. Well, the, the, key, the, key, the key thing is that as... As long as he has his command, he is immune from prosecution. So no one can no one can prosecute him for 
as his enemies see it, the crimes that he had committed during his consulship. Right. But they're all desperate. They're waiting for their chance to prosecute <laughs> Caesar. Um, so therefore, for Caesar, it's incredibly important that he maintains his immunity from prosecution by getting another magistracy when he ends his term of governorship. And so he wants to go straight from governorship to a consulship. And so um, there's there's a, a tribune called Caelius who uh, in 52 BC proposes that Caesar should have the right, the right to run for election to the consulship while he's in Gaul. And the backdrop to this is that Caesar has just won the greatest, most extraordinary victory of his entire career, possibly in the whole of Roman military history, which is where he crushes a, a Gallic rebelt, a revolt at Alasia. And anyone who's read Asterix will remember Vercingetorix coming out and dropping his armour on Caesar's feet. That's how they portray it. And, and, and what, hap- what, what happened at this is, is that Caesar is besieging Vercingetorix in this stronghold of, of Alasia. And Vercingetorix is Gauls outnumber Caesar's legions, but they're penned in. And then another relief army of Gauls comes. And so Caesar builds another series of fortifications to keep them out. So they're being attacked on both sides by two armies, both of which outnumber them. And somehow Caesar wins. Somehow he slaughters them all. And this essentially ends the Gallic revolt. Everyone back in Rome recognises the astonishing scale of what Caesar's achieved. Even the Senate votes him 20 days of thanksgiving. And this yeah. is the backdrop where Caelius is able to say, OK, we think that you know Caesar's achievements are such that he should be allowed this immunity and to run for the consulship while he's in Gaul. Now, Caesar's enemies refuse to countenance this. They hate him so much. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's AC Grayling. <laughs> <laughs> AC Grayling level of hatred for... Johnson or yeah. Farage or whatever. I mean, it's that So Boris Johnson has won of, this of, battle. Yes, he's won. And- Boris Johnson has, yes, <laughs> exactly. And basically, liberal London is Refuses, absolutely yeah, determined ref- they will put him on trial regardless. So yeah. there is no compromise. And essentially, the, it, it, it's fought over and fought over and fought over. And there is a kind of slight echoing of of that kind of brexit deadlock so caelius the the tribune who'd pushed that through is a friend of cicero who's the, the great orator whose letters and speeches are, are essentially our major source for this period and caelius writes to caesar to cicero you know the form some decision will be reached about gaul then someone stands up and complains about it then someone else stands up in turn and so it drags on a long elaborate game yeah. and the horror of the situation is that no one can see a way it's impossible to square the circle. <laughs> and the person for whom this is a particular nightmare is Pompey because Pompey doesn't want to have to choose because he, yeah. he doesn't want to have to alienate Caesar, particularly when Caesar is potentially so dangerous, but equally he doesn't want to lose the respect of all his new chums in the Senate who suddenly are, are kind of are, are backing him. And in 51, Pompey comes out against Caesar and says that he should lay down his command. Um, and he specifically says that that he is going to act like a father to Caesar. So that's incredibly offensive to Caesar. Yeah. You know, Pompey is laying claim to the rights of a father over Caesar, his own father-in-law. As Tom, could, could Pompey have chosen differently? Could Pompey have thought, well, you know what? Uh, I don't want to risk civil war. I've basically got yeah, half the power. 
I mean, was that done. that was his great mistake? Was it he 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 just should have carved up power with Caesar and yeah sold I, out I, the Senate basically. As it turned out, that yes, that would have worked out better for him. Yeah. Um, but I think that that the opportunity to well, it wasn't just to pose as the you know as 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 the defender of of the constitution. I mean, he believed it, um, even though Pompey himself had had engaged in endless kind of criminal unconstitutional actions at his heart he wanted the approval of the constitutionalists and so the chance ultimately to to pose as the defender of the constitution was was too big an opportunity um and so once pompey has swung behind the constitutionalists it means that the no resolution is possible so you go into 50 in december of, of 50 bc one of the two consuls goes out to Pompey's villa in the Auburn Hills outside Rome. And he takes a sword and he hands Pompey the sword. And he says, we, uh, we charge you to march against Caesar, to defend the Republic. And Pompey takes the sword and says, I will do, I will do it if necessary. And that's when it becomes evident that, you know, there is going to be the most almighty bust up because now uh, you know, we talked about this before, 1st of January, consuls turn over, the tribunes turn over. Um, tribune in uh, 49, who moved, comes in on the 1st of January, is one of Caesar's um, most decorated, most um, celebrated officers from Gaul, a man called Mark Antony. And so Mark Antony becomes tribune. He's Caesar's man in the Senate. And on the 1st of January, 49, Antony reads out a proposal in the Senate from Caesar, that both Caesar and Pompey should lay down their commands simultaneously. That's a pretty but, good compromise, isn't it? Why it does is. Pompey take it? Well, the Senate decide that this might look too favourable, that, you know, they're so committed to, to destroying Caesar that they they think that that might make him look good. So they suppress it. It is. Which is again, but you can see the kind of the Brexit echo by pushing for total victory, they lose the chance to bank yeah. some winnings. They go for the second referendum and it they blows go for the second referendum. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, and so then they, they vote, they agree on a date by which Caesar has to give up his command and that gets passed. Now, right. the, the role of a tribune, of course, the tribunes famously have the veto. A, a tribune can veto a, a measure. So Antony vetoes this measure. Uh, and, the Senate, rather than accepting that, and you know, this is the the, the idea that they're constitutionalists, you know, they're, they're perfectly happy to bend the constitution when it suits their right. needs. They declare a state of emergency. So, seventh of January, they declare a state of emergency. Uh, Antony very, very flamboyantly disguises himself as a slave, as does uh, Caelius, as does a, a, another Caesarian uh, tribune. They kind of hide in a, a, a wagon and very ostentatiously head off. To the Hold frontier on. to Ravenna. How can you hide ostentatiously? That's how they did it. It's all theatre. You know, <laughs> right. they make sure that everyone knows. That oh, so every so yes. another word, right? Okay, yeah. so it's a performance, basically. It's, a, it's performative, I believe. Right? Yes, yeah. very good. So they all and so they, they and so they head off to Ravenna, which is where yeah. Caesar is with the Thirteenth Legion, waiting for news. And there's some confusion in the in the in the sources about. Wh- when exactly the tribunes get to Caesar. Some say it's after the Lucon, some say before, but yep. indisputed, the news reaches Caesar in Ravenna and, you know, he basically faces this excruciating decision. At last, we have finally reached the banks of the Rubicon. 
And on that note, we'll be back after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. So, Tom, Julius Caesar, he's there at the bank of the Rubicon, and we have had a lot of questions about this moment. So Nick R. says, what would have happened if Caesar hadn't crossed the Rubicon? John O. Henker says, what was Caesar intending to do? Um, There's this sort of uh, Mark Woodhouse says, was he ever not going to cross it? What were his other options? I mean, the way you presented it suggests to me that he's always going to cross it, Um, not least because... Yeah. Sulla has already has already done this, right? He's already marched on Rome. So Caesar, the crossing of the Rubicon is not such a an yeah, unprecedented well, is it? So, so so there are various there are various accounts of it. But one person who does not give an account of the crossing of the Rubicon is Caesar himself. So Caesar writes, you know, as he had written commentaries on on his Gallic campaigns, he writes one on the Civil War as well. Um and uh, his the, the target, you know, he goes from Ravenna to a, a town called Arminium. And Caesar's comment on this is he set out with his legions to Arminium. There is no mention <laughs> of the Rubicon. There's right. no mention of the fact that he's crossed it, that he's come into Italy. So you may wonder, well, where does all this stuff about him standing on the banks of the Rubicon and, and you know, wondering and pondering come from? Um, and I think almost certainly it comes from a guy called Gaius Asinius Pollio, who was an officer with Caesar and and with him on on the banks of the Rubicon? He goes on to become a, a very significant cultural figure as well as political figure. So he's um, he's the patron of Virgil. He's a friend of Horace. He's he's a kind of Republican who stays true to that ideal right the way through his his life. He kind of dies, I think, um, AD four. But Pollio writes an account of this 
And he, so Plutarch, who, who writes a biography of the biography of Caesar that gives the casualty figures in Gaul, um, he, he says that, that Caesar stands on the banks of the Rubicon and kind of ponders. Um, and then he says, let the die be cast. He says this in Greek. Okay, not in Latin. No. So it's a quotation from, um, from Menander. Uh, kubos. Let the die be thrown. Let the die be cast. Yeah. Now, in, uh, in Suetonius's account, it's, this is translated into Latin as, as, uh, Yacta alia est. Yeah, that's the more famous. That's it the is. most famous version, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it is, but there's, I see there's a question from, um, Amy Mantravadi. Yeah. Do we accept Erasmus's assertion that Caesar said, let the die be cast and not the die is cast? And interestingly, the, um, so I've, I've been doing a translation of Suetonius for Penguin Classics. And the text I've been using, the Oxford Classical text, it has um, Yacta Alia Esto, which is let the die be cast. So we don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. Whether I mean, he may not have know, said the either. die is cast or let yeah. the die be cast, I mean, ultimately it doesn't matter. I think he probably did say it, I mean, because Polio clearly remembered, you know, or Polio is making it up. I mean, doesn't he have this line, Tom? Uh, it's not, that's not all he says. Doesn't he also say, where is it? Uh, let us follow where the omens of the gods and the evils of our foes yes. will lead us or something like yes. that. Yes. Do you think he said that? Well, um, we've, we talked about the magic snakes, didn't we? In, in the context in, of Alexander. Okay. Yes. Well, so I will, um, I'll read you my translation of that passage. Go it's for in it. It's Suetonius. So, uh, according to Suetonius, um, the news has reached Caesar. Um, he affects absolute lack of concern. He uh, attends a public festival. He uh, inspects the plans for a gladiator school. He hosts a dinner party. Um, and then the sun sets. Uh, he harnesses mules from a nearby mill to his carriage. And he sets off in utmost secrecy with a kind of very small retinue heading off to the banks of the Rubicon. But um, his torches blow out and he gets lost. So he blunders about until <laughs> the sun starts to rise again in the in the east. He locates a guide and and this guide then takes him to the banks of the Rubicon. And he stands there and, and Suetonius says that he says, even now we could turn back, but once we have crossed that tiny bridge, everything will have to be decided by war. And then, according to Suetonius, a wondrous thing happens. Nearby him, a figure of remarkable size and beauty abruptly appeared, sitting and playing on a pipe. And when some of his soldiers, trumpeters among them, abandoned their posts to join the large number of shepherds who had run to listen to the music. The apparition snatched a trumpet from one of the trumpeters, leapt into the river, sounded the advance with a mighty blast and crossed over to the river bank. And that's when Caesar says, let us go where we are summoned, both by divinely authored signs and by the wrongs our foes have done us. Let the die be cast or the die is cast as, as you prefer. Yeah. So it's an incredibly dramatic moment. And, 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 Caesar crosses the Rubicon. Civil war ensues. Pompey is defeated. All the armies of Caesar's enemies are defeated. Caesar follows Sulla in making himself dictator. He ends up, unlike Sulla, who he, he says Sulla was an idiot for ever having laid down his dictatorship. Caesar is appointed dictator for life. And for this, he is assassinated by the people that he has pardoned and forgiven. 
to his own Clement. Is it Clementia? Did you say? Clementia, yeah. Has come back to bite him because people, they feel humiliated yeah, by and, his and, pardons, don't they? And the paradox of that is that, that Caesar pardons them because in that, you know, in that sense, he is a true Republican. He doesn't want to behave like Sulla. He doesn't want to execute people. He doesn't want to, you know, pay bounty money for heads. Uh, and so the people he's pardoned murder him as the murderer of the Republic because they're able to, because Caesar had pardoned them for impeccably Republican reasons. So do you think, Tom, that that moment, so just one last, one tiny detail, the, it would be an even more dramatic moment, wouldn't it, if the Rubicon was a better river than it is? <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible Cause river. Because it's, it's basically <laughs> little more than a, it's just a stream, isn't it, really? Yeah, so it's, it's um, nobody was really sure which one it is. I guess we're still not entirely certain, but it, it's thought to be a river that um, I think until Mussolini I think Mussolini changed the name officially to back to Rubicono, but it was the Fiumicino. And um, I, I remember going to look for it and it's incredibly disappointing. It's very, very <laughs> polluted. It kind oh, of runs yeah. through industrial zones and it's all snagged with cans and waste. Okay. So it's called that Rubio is- because that's, um, uh, it's kind of rusty red. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's kind of, even in ancient times, it had kind of iron deposits, you know, turning it red but now it's absolutely filthy as i remember but do you think so that to cross the rubicon um in sort of modern idiom means to take a decision that changes everything after which there is no going back does it change everything though because it does do you do you think but don't you think it what follows is to some degree inevitable the decline of the collapse of the republican system and the the rise of basically imperial dictatorship or do you think it took uh, I, Caesar I to that, make think, it happen? I, I think that um, had had Pompey uh, swallowed his pride and negotiated a compact with Caesar, you could imagine a kind of duumvirate. Yeah, I, I mean, they may well have still have ended up fighting a civil war, but you could imagine you know, they they wouldn't. Um, had Caesar's opponents been less obdurate, you can imagine him becoming consul. And then yeah. kind of being embroiled back into the, the cut and thrust of Republican politics. So I don't think it was always in, inevitable. Um, um, I think, I think, I think it's, I mean, I think it was always very, very likely. And I think that um, the reason that you, know, you, you, you asked, why do we remember Caesar and not Sulla? Partly it's because um, Caesar's march on Rome is is properly terminal for the Republic. Yeah. Caesar despises, you know, is not going to do what Sulla did. But I think it's also because you have that, you know, it's that physical idea of the river. And it's the idea that on one side of the river, you have the Republic and on the other, you have the empire. You know, on one side, you have freedom and on the other, you have tyranny. Or as if you prefer, on one side, you have anarchy and chaos and on the other, you have order. And it's a kind of primal dividing line in what will become Western politics. And that's why it, it's remembered because Rome does serve this primal role in the imagination yeah. of the West. It always has done. And the counterpointing of a Republican system of government with an autocratic system of government, it, you know, those are the, the kind of the great poles around but, but, which the Western political imagination has always revolved. I, I think that's a really convincing argument, but it does raise one last question, which is Danny Kaye's question. Um, if the, you know, this is a, a, such a dividing line in kind of 
Western political imagination, as you say, between order and anarchy or between empire and, and freedom or whatever. But why is it Caesar who is so totally remembered when the man who really incarnates that change is the man who ends up as his, as his adopted heir, his great nephew, Octavian Augustus, who is the first, I mean, Caesar is not the first emperor, Augustus is. So why is it that we remember, I mean, everybody's heard of Julius Caesar. Even people who have no interest in history at all have heard of him. And and probably even a lot of people who have no interest in history have heard of the crossing of the Rubicon. But people who have no interest in history often have not heard of Augustus at all, I would say. Why do you think that is? Because Augustus veils his power. Um, Augustus enters a compact with the Senate that the Senate will pretend to be more powerful than it is, and Augustus will pretend to be less powerful than he yeah. is. Caesar doesn't do that. Caesar is, in that sense, a Republican. He wants his his glory. He wants his dignitas. He wants his his fame. And Caesar is a kind of... His powers are demonic and sublime, and he is... He has this, these qualities of boldness, of dash, of perseverance, of a, a yearning to be the best. That, in a way, are the kind. It's the essence of what the Republic had always been, and why the Republic had become the superpower that it did. And the the subtitle of Rubicon, the the book I wrote on this, is the triumph and tragedy. Of the Roman Republic, it's a wonderful and, book, by the way. And in a People who are listening, and oh, haven't thank you, it, they should thank they you. should go out and buy it forthwith. Um, but the reason it's a, one way to define a tragedy is that qualities that under normal circumstances would would be positive become negatives. Yeah, and in that sense, I suppose Caesar, you know, he he's a very republican figure, but it's a kind he he becomes a kind of cancer, I guess, within the body politic of of the republic that yeah. that all those qualities that had been working for the republic turn against it joe we've got a podcast coming up on 1922 and he's like david lloyd george you know people uh, so stanley baldwin said i've done lloyd george lloyd george is a dynamic force but a dynamic force is a terrible thing and that's pretty much how the romans think of caesar isn't it yeah they recognize his qualities but they think they're too much they he yeah. has to go so, yeah. but but Augustus, Augustus is a, a greater politician, isn't he? Yes, the, Augustus is a com incomparably a greater politician, but Caesar is a greater man. And if we're talking about <laughs> greatness in that sense, you know, and, okay. and, and, and we are yeah. suspicious of greatness. We've talked about this so many times, but but Caesar indisputably, if if there is such a thing as a great man, Caesar was a great man. He was a great conqueror. He was a great political leader. He um, he was brilliant at almost everything he touched, uh, and. I think there is something terrifying and yeah, kind of demonic about it. And if we're okay. talking about 1922, yeah, uh, I'm sure W. B. Yeats, who becomes a, a senator in that year, <laughs> Yeats wrote a, a brilliant poem uh, about Caesar on the banks of the Rubicon: "That civilization may not sink its great battle lost. Quiet the dog, tether the pony to a distant post. Our master Caesar is in the tent where the maps are spread, his eyes fixed upon nothing." a hand upon his head, like a long-legged fly upon the stream, his mind moves upon silence. Um, Augustus does not generate, does not yeah. inspire that, that kind of poetry. Oh, from Virgil, maybe? Or yeah, Horace? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> anyway, yeah, maybe. Tom, I could listen to you talking about all this 
I could actually listen to you for hours, but I recognize that uh, people listen to this podcast while walking the dog or doing the dishes and that nobody does the dishes for three hours. So we should probably, we will return to the end of the Roman Republic and the birth of the Roman Empire in future podcasts. We have so many plans for podcasts about the Romans, but our path leads us later this week to 1922. And uh, thank you very much, Tom. We will see you all uh, in 1922 next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.